to our first full episode of the Fantasy Review Podcast, where the page is only the beginning. My name is Nathan Columbara. I am a blogger and reviewer at the fantasyreviews.com, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, James, who is the author of No Heart for a Thief. Um, James, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I mean, I'm I'm glad to be home after a long day of work uh, and happy to be talking to you. What have you been reading lately? Let's see. Um, so actually, just this morning before I left for work, I finished um, Paladin Unbound by okay. Jeff. Yeah, Jeff Spate. Jeff Spite. I don't know how to pronounce his last I, I'm name. I'm not sure either. I've been hearing good things about it. But, and yeah. the sequel just came out, right? Yeah, it just came out or it's just coming out. It's either March or April. But it's a fun D&D adventure. If you're somebody who okay. just wants that, let's get the band together and let's go on fun adventures. It's definitely like the book for you. There's a lot of side quests. There's a lot of like mini villains that they have to tackle throughout. Um, so I really enjoyed it. It's a quick read. It was a fast read. I finished it in like two days. I just finished that one. Uh, earlier in the week, I finished Shannon Chakraborty's new book, The Adventures of Amina Al-Sarafi. Oh, that is such a beautiful cover. I That's all I know about it. It's, it's a beautiful cover. It's a pirate nautical fantasy in which there's a woman, she's probably like middle-aged and she's a retired pirate and she gets pulled back in for one last heist, one last adventure to save this young girl who's been kidnapped by this, I think he's a European guy. The actual book is set on the coasts of the Indian Ocean in the 12th century. So it was a really great, fun adventure um, in this kind of Muslim Arabic world that we don't often see depicted okay. in fantasy. Yeah, I'm I'm in a bit of a reading slump. I have been pushing my way through a slog with I've been trying to finish the first binding. It's very beautifully written. I'm enjoying the st- the story, the characters, I'm enjoying the setting. And so it's it's really this the thing is it's too reminiscent of the name of the wind for me. And it's it hits all the same story beats and to the point where I'm like, I know this exact scene from the name of the wind. And that really throws me off with the like falling into the story. So it it feels like it's the name of the wind, but set in an Indian fantasy setting, which is really cool. So if you haven't read the name of the wind, I think you're going to love it. Uh, but if you have read the name of the wind and you remember the book at all, you're going to be like, I, I know exactly this plot point and I know what comes next. And I'm guessing this is what comes next. I've heard there's an amazing ending. I'm kind of trying to push my way to get to that. But it, it's it's really slowed me down. I've gotten through a couple of audiobooks lately. So I finished the Threadlight uh, series not too long ago on audiobook. And that was great. But I, I've been having a hard time with physical books because I, I have a hard time DNFing. I'm the same way. I cannot will myself to DNF most of the time. I hate that about myself because I feel like there's so many good books out there that I'm not getting to because I'm slogging yes. through the bad ones. But sometimes I feel like I can't give up. And what was that last week or the week before I finished reading um, The Stars Undying by Emery Robin, I think is the author, which is kind of like a space opera queer retelling of Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra. And I hated this book for like the first 100 pages. Like, I don't know why I kept going. But then... I loved the last 400 pages. Okay. Uh, I was totally on board. And so that's just reinforced in my brain. Like, do not DNF because you never know when that's going to happen. I'm having the opposite experience. I loved the beginning of this book. And there were paths where it diverged away from the name of the wind. 
And now it just, it feels like it diverged enough just to come right back and line up. And so I'll, I'll probably push myself through at some point. There's a novella I really want to get to. I think it's called uh, The Black God's Drums that I really want to get into. And so maybe I'll just kind of pause on the first binding and move to that for a moment. Yeah, novellas are one of my favorite things to get out of reading slumps because you just kind of power through them and they're done. Yeah, yeah they're just it's really like 100 pages. So. But yeah, so uh, should we get into it? Let's do it. We've decided for the first episode to ta- tackle a really easy issue. We're going to talk about cancel culture. And I know this is what everybody's been waiting for. Two white guys giving their opinions on cancel culture. It's really important to hear our voices. And (laughs) since you can't all see the video, this is very much laced with sarcasm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's also cool for us to have this conversation, um, especially since with so much going on every day, it seems like every day on Twitter or TikTok or whatever, there's a new quote unquote, cancel culture moment where some controversy is happening in the kind of science fiction and fantasy space. So I think it'd be cool to just really dig into this, um, this topic. I I think the first question is cancel culture real? I think people push back against this and ask that question all the time. So is cancel culture real? I don't think it is in the way that most people think of cancel culture. I've heard the term used as an alternative cancel culture, which is um, accountability culture, which I think is a much better way of thinking about it, which is holding people and creators and authors and everybody else just accountable for the things that they do and the things that they write and the things that they say. And I think that's the most important element. Yeah, I would say it's a rebranding of things that have already existed. So there's always been consequences for your actions when you're speaking out in a public arena to a certain extent. There's always been people making decisions whether or not to consume media based on whether they like what something that somebody has done. There's always been boycotts around media when somebody steps outside of the norm or breaks a law or does something offensive. And it's just been relabeled. I think there is a difference added to it based on the ubiquity of social media. And so that democratizes it in a way that I don't think think has necessarily existed in the same way before. I do think there are elements of people using this ideology of cancel culture to make noise. And so potentially pointing things out to a greater degree than they need to be pointed out. But, you know, everybody has their own barometer for what is offensive, what is not offensive, what should be the line. Some people are willing to listen to an R. Kelly song, even if their friend is triggered by it. And uh, they'll say that's a personal choice and others will make a judgment based on that personal choice you make. So I think there's just a a level of, there are consequences for everybody's actions, right? And the choices you make around media say something about your, the choices you make around your willingness to consume certain media in a public fashion, say something about how you want to interact with the public. I think your point there, especially about social media is like right on it, not only because it allows more voices into the conversation, which is usually a good thing, especially when it allows more diverse voices who in the past haven't had a platform to talk about some of these biases or some of these prejudicial elements, like in the Harry Potter verse, where you know, we never really have this conversation in the open about how goblins are an anti-Semitic stereotype. I'm sure mm-hmm. those things have existed 
before social media. But, you know, I grew up reading Harry Potter and I never heard that until relatively recently. But I also think that there's the issue of making noise, as you said, just to make noise because it gets you clout and it gets you followers. And I think there might be a problem with that where the more that you can complain about something, the more you can call out people about something, the more likes you're going to get, the more shares you're going to get, the more follows you're going to get. And I think in some cases, people will say things just to get that follow, to get that like. And I think that there might be a problem there because we do have to be careful about what we say and how we approach these things because we need to hold people accountable, but we also have to remember that these are like real people. I mean, I, I want to pause and step back and think about the act of hold, holding somebody accountable is an act of utilizing your power. To whatever extent you have power, it is an act of utilizing your power. And some people just like to utilize their power. Some people... It, you know, you say a wrong word that you don't actually know is offensive or has uh, connotations that that could be taken as, as problematic. And somebody loudly calls you out because they want to be seen as having that righteousness. That that is a problem. But that's existed before cancel culture it was termed. It was coined as a term. That's just some people utilizing whatever space they have to be loud and in your face and in the spotlight. But that's not the majority of what's happening. That is the exception to the rule, but it's a very loud exception. So people are easy, can easily point it out. And when we get this approach like this and we take things to the extreme, I, the thing about cancel culture is that we automatically go to the point where it's like that person, their career is over. Yeah. Like we don't allow people to, to say, hey, I did wrong. We don't allow authors or other people in this community to learn or grow from those mistakes. And I think that's one thing that I'm always very careful about is at what level is what somebody did like truly heinous enough where we're saying like, you're done. There's nothing you can come back from this. And at what point do we allow people to learn and grow from some of these things that they've said or done? And so whenever I see something, I'm always thinking like, at what level is this? Like, where do we draw that line? And how do we even decide where that line is? But I, I think it's also worth pointing out who's actually been like, who's actually been affected by cancel culture. So you you point out, you can point out Louis C.K. You can point out, you, you can point out J.K. Rowling. You can point out, you know, multiple actors and actresses and people in the spotlight who have been called out for sexual abuse and sexual assault, who have been called out for racism, misogyny, who have been called out for a lot of very heinous things, and they still have their next acting job. You know, Louis C.K. just released a CD, and didn't he win a Grammy last year? Yeah, like, and Dave Chappelle just won a Grammy this year. Yeah, it, so cancel culture seems to be a very good way of complaining to get a certain demographic of people to listen to you with even more fervor. So... I also think it's a re calling it cancel culture is a response to accountability that people have found. If you use that as, as a, as a call out as, you know, this is cancel culture, that's going to promote your voice in a new way. And that's going to get you even more readers in some ways. I think we saw that with JK Rowling and Hogwarts legacy that when Trans people and the trans community and allies were like, listen, J.K. Rowling 
has literally funded laws and has enacted and used her speech to hurt the trans community, to promote violence, to promote this idea that trans people don't exist in the way that they say they exist. We, we as a community are asking you, just, just don't buy a game. And I think to a certain extent, that promoted the game because people don't like being told no. Even people who call themselves allies were out there streaming the game on Twitch and putting it on TikTok and all of that. And they don't like being told no, so they do it even harder. That it's it's a sad side effect. And I think that has a lot to do with this pushback on cancel culture and it being framed as this idea of a lack of freedom when it's really just telling you, hey, this hurts us, please don't do it. And you have your choice, you can do it or you cannot do it. Just the simple ask of not doing something becomes this attack on freedom. And it's it's just a sad reaction. The Hogwarts Legacy case is also so complex because I've also heard a lot of voices from the trans community who are saying like, hey, we have no problem with this game, you know, and they're actually blaming, you know, cisgendered allies for making this a big deal when some parts of the trans community are saying it's not a big deal while you have other people in the trans community saying it is a big deal. And it becomes this huge debate and people kind of just go with the group that already fits, I think, their preconceived notions about what's working. So I think that becomes a problem. And then you got people who will jump through hoops to justify any of their actions. Like they'll be like, well, what about the the game's creators? You know, because they're getting hurt if we don't buy this game. And one of the game's creators that one of the head guys of the game is what a a white supremacist and was canceled from was was removed from projects before this because of his viewpoints around issues of race. So, like, I'm not worried about him as a creator. He's also already been paid, as many p- people have pointed out. You're right. You you can't say that all trans people are against something or that any one community is going to move as a monolith. And, and so it, it just brings up a lot of complex things. I, can, I think you could say that about any one of the, the, the things that have been quote-unquote canceled by a community. There are going to be people in that community that don't want to cancel it. At the end of the day, you got to make your own moral judgments and you got to figure out how you're going to consume media. And when you do it publicly, it says something publicly. So you got to decide what you want to communicate to the world. There's a difference between playing Hogwarts Legacy in the privacy of your own home and enjoying a game and going live on Twitch when people in your comments are saying like, this is harmful, you yelling and screaming about it. The Hogwarts legacy thing, I get why it's a complex issue like for everybody on an individual basis. For so many people, especially of a certain generation, the Harry Potter books were us growing up. They're such a big part of who we are. I was thinking about for the blog, for the fantasyreviews.com, of writing a series of kind of the fantasy books that made me uh, as a kid. And I was debating if I really wanted to even put the Harry Potter books on there. You know, because on one hand, they definitely did. I started reading them when I was like eight years old or nine years old. When I remember my aunt bought me the first two. But at the same time, they kind of have this taint on them now because J.K. Rowling did say transphobic things. And when she was called out on it, she doubled down numerous times at this point. And as you start 
kind of going into her writing and people start pointing out some of the other racist and stereotypical things in those books, it really does taint it. But at the same time, I get why people are so defensive of it and protective of it yeah. because we don't want to let that go. And we, we are defensive and we hold onto things that formulated us as a person. And art is definitely a big part of who we are and how we became who we are. You have never not seen defense come up when it comes to art and the artist doing bad things. So we can jump back to Woody Allen. If you don't know what happened with Woody Allen, you can Google it. Woody Allen has done some horrific things. People will still live and die by his movies. They'll say Annie Hall is one of the best movies of all time, and I'm not willing to give that up. People grew up with listening to R. Kelly and love his music. And regardless of what he has done with young children, young Black children specifically, people are still going to fight to keep that in their lives because it has it, it's emotionally connected to important moments in their lives. And I get that. But to a certain extent, we have to decide whether nostalgia is more important or whether the people around us are more. Important. And if you're bumping R. Kelly really loudly uh, and your friend has a history of having similar types of abuse in their lives, they're probably not going to be your friend very long because they're going to understand that you care more about your nostalgia than their comfort in your car. And so it's just all about making choices, I think. And we all have to make them. Speaking of choices, it's also really interesting to see at what point the people at the top of these businesses, whether it's the people at the top of film studios, publishing houses, at what point they cut ties with these quote unquote canceled celebrities and when they hold on to them. You know, because we've had we've seen a lot of cases where actors are fired from film projects, television projects, where publishers drop authors because of some of this stuff. But then you get the issue of like Ezra Miller in The Flash. And what Ezra Miller has done, it's there's numerous things in terms of violent acts, grooming behavior, and a Kidnapping. lot of other things. Ezra Miller has not even been charged with the crimes that there is assorted a amounts of evidence just online that you can look up. Admissions of guilt by their own social media presence. It's, and they're not being held accountable because it's simply more financially viable and, and financially, there, there are financial incentives to keep them around. There are financial incentives to push this movie forward because let's be honest, the DCEU has been suffering for a long time. It never really found its way. They're looking for the Flash to set off a whole new universe. They need this movie to work. And so they chose finances over everything. And that's what businesses are going to do. The only reason that I think people have been dropped from jobs is because those businesses thought it was financially viable to do so and that they were going to get they were going to lose more money by not doing so. But Kevin Spacey was dropped from a, a gig, what, five years ago at this point? Yeah, House uh, of Cards. Yeah, House of Cards, because he was uh, because of the allegations of his sexual assault of a minor. He hasn't been around for a while. He's coming back now. Louis C.K. admitted to sexual harassment of his employees, and he's making his comeback. I don't think that there's any real cancellation. There's just 
when are they going to be financially viable again? With the Ezra Miller situation, I have heard from people who are like part of screen audiences and things that The Flash is probably the best DCEU movie that has been made. And I think that's why they want to keep it around because people were really happy with it and they were really excited about it. But what's also been interesting about that is the trailer that I saw that aired before Ant-Man, it featured more Batman than it did Ezra Miller and The Flash, which I think was a very intentional move to try to... Let's just get us, because I think the movie comes out in July or June or something. I think it was like, let's get us to another couple of months and maybe the whole Ezra Miller situation will die down enough that people won't care anymore. And I'm personally not going to see the movie. If I do see the movie, it will be when it streams. And I don't even know if I'll watch it then. One, the DCUU has not been, they have one movie that I'll, I'll watch again, and that is The Suicide Squad. That is the only movie of all of the movies they put out that I've actually found good from start to finish. Um, I think there are some highlights here and there in, in Aquaman. I think there, Shazam has its moments. The DCUU is a boring mess of a universe, or a universe. You know, I, I don't think it holds water. I think they tried to compete with MCU, but they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't take their time and they rushed into things. They did a poor job. Zack Snyder was not the person to make a universe around. He can make a good movie, but he also makes one very specific type of movie. And that's not lending itself to multiple directors building a universe around it. They they did not think it out. And so they're they're holding their hat on the Flash making this change for them and giving it to James Gunn. I I won't watch any DCU movies going forward if they keep Ezra Miller as the Flash. Yeah, and also the fact that they hired James Gunn, who was also fired for a while from Guardians. I think it was volume three, the one that's coming out, for problematic behavior on set. And then they brought him back. He yeah, was, one he was of fired them. for some old tweets that were homophobic, right? And I, I think there was the pushback of these were years old and he has since adapted his positions and changed his mind. And so I think it comes back to there are things that we probably should be willing to let people grow from. But I also think at the time, you know, people were overreacting to the smallest thing because they were so worried about cancel culture being bigger than it actually was. And so I think that happened with James Gunn. It happened with Kevin Hart in the exact same way with the Oscars. Both of them have arguably had even bigger careers since then. So uh, bigger career moments since then. So I, I I think they're doing fine. And that that growth element is so important. And I think that brings up the whole TJ Klune and the House in the Cerulean Sea issue, which is that he said in an interview that he based this book on the 60s scoop which was Canada and parts of the United States where indigenous children were taken from their families, put in boarding schools or or put into white families. And he made a cozy, feel good fantasy about it. And, you know, TJ Klune yeah. is a, is a white American who is, does not identify as indigenous anyway. There's been a lot of conflict over, well, do we just not like the book now? Is TJ Klune canceled himself? What do we do about this? I think that the issue here is that TJ Klune has apologized. You know, TJ Klune has said that he realizes what he did was wrong and that he won't do it again. 
And so that puts me as a reader in an awkward position because I don't know how I engage with his work anymore. And I think it also just exposes a hole in the whole cozy fantasy genre that sometimes they take really dark things and try to make it feel good. And I don't know, because like The House in the Australian Sea, it's problematic because he is a white man using indigenous suffering to make money. But even his second book, Under the Whispering Door, wasn't problematic, but it still turned something dark like death and tried to make it cozy, and it just didn't work either. So here, I'm I'm coming at this, and I'm going to, you know, put it out there. My book, you know, No Heart for a Thief, is featuring black and brown characters. It it discusses colonialism. The only white characters on page are the colonialist regime, and you don't spend much time with them. It's really focused on these characters who are experiencing colonialism. And I have had a lot of internal debates on, and it has nothing to do with cancel culture and how it will be received. It has to do with whether or not that is my place to write a book about that. I came down to the idea that I think if white writers should be having discussions on race because white supremacy affects us all, and we need to deal with that through our art as well. But we need to do so in a very particular way. We need to do research on what we're talking about. We need to do so with the openness to accountability. We need to be able to adjust and do better. We need to not put our voices out first and foremost. There are steps that I think white writers can do to engage in these conversations. But turning an atrocity into a cozy fantasy moment is not the way to go about it. Everybody will have their own barometer on whether they're still willing to read T.J. Klune. And I think some people, he's off their list. And other people, they're good with an apology. I think the thing is, there are people who are looking for a rule book, and there's no rule book. Mm -hmm. There's nobody who's going to tell you, yes, you can do this, or no, you can't do this, and it's going to be okay with everybody else. You have to be okay with your decisions being your decisions and some people not liking them. And there's a big difference between what you did in your book, No Heart for a Thief, which is actually tackling these issues with characters of color versus taking these historical events and applying them to white characters and white problems. And we see that in a lot of, for example, dystopian novels. Yes. Where, you know, we see a lot of white suffering, you know, white people under like the thumb of some oppressive group. And it's just it that's where I think it becomes a little problematic as well. Um, In your book, did you ever consider having like a sensitivity reader or using beta readers? Oh, I I had sensitivity readers and I had uh, beta readers of color. I had lots of different checks and balances in there. I got a lot of positive feedback, but at the end of the day, it's my work and it's the decisions I made around it. So I'm never going to say that I had a sensitivity reader, so I'm all good. There, There might be people that read my book and have a problem with a white man writing on the experiences of people. Now it's, it's not earth. So these have people have not experienced the same exact kinds of suffering or moments in history, but they're experiencing colonialism. They're experiencing racism. They're experiencing these acts within this new world. Um, and I am trying to do my best to humanize them in a way that makes them feel fully fleshed out and, and really examines the experience because I wanted to address whiteness through literature without centering white people at the forefront of it. But there will be people who are not okay with that. And they're not wrong. 
that's just they have a different perspective and you know they they have the right to do so just kind of getting to that a lot of the times in these these books with characters of color that are highlighted and featured they're often also under just a lot more scrutiny by readers there's these ideas that you know for example a recent controversy was over the book the blood trials which is essentially in that hunger games genre um but written by a black woman, Annie Davenport. And a lot of white readers were like, I didn't like this book because I didn't like the main character because she was angry. And other people and the author herself were like, yeah, because she experiences racism, you know, you know, and so it's also about understanding and having empathy for people who are going through experiences that you might, you yourself might not have gone through and not judging the characters for that and actually understanding that positionality and that viewpoint. I would I would go a step further to say it's not even about the characters on page. It's about the writer behind the pen. I think that white writers are much more willing to give white authors the benefit of the doubt. There is an assumption of some some white readers and some readers in general will assume a level of whatever it is, professionalism or skill set or talent based on whiteness. And that is an issue. So Black authors have to go through more hoops. They're less likely to be represented by agents. They're less likely to be represented, uh, find deals within the big five. They're less likely to find success within self-publishing. I don't have the data on that, but I can tell you from the the circles I run in in self-publishing, it is less likely that authors of color are, are getting the same kind of attention that white authors are. And at the same time, there's this weird conversation that people will say, well, publishing only wants authors of color now. And it it's not supported by data. It's not supported by any kind of numbers. It's just completely this myth we've made up because now there are more authors of color than there used to be. So 1% has gone to 2%. That does not mean it's it, it, that Black authors or authors of color are taking over publishing. That means there's a little bit more room. If you look at even something like Spiffbo, the self-published fantasy blog off, I've been following it for a couple of years now because I think it's a great way to get into and find new self-published authors. Have any of them been, I know that there's been a couple authors of color, but I don't know if there's been any Black authors in the finals, at least in the last couple of years that I've really been following it. Even. So I don't know who all has won all the Spiffbo uh, competitions. Who uh, I know that, you know, you have Sword of Kaigan, who's written by M.L. Wong. You have last year was Rain. Rain was in the title. Um, um, Rain and Ruin. Yeah, Rain and Evans. Ruin, yes. Yeah. You, you have a lot of great books in there, but I, I think you're right. There's There's definitely a lack of diversity there, but it's not just the authors that have a lack of diversity. There's a lack of diversity in the blogs that are represented in reviewing the books which yeah. then leads down the pipeline to having a lack of diversity in those books that are chosen to make finals. It's also, as you mentioned earlier, just a couple of minutes ago, it's a pipeline issue too. I think if you go through all of the books that are even submitted, you know, I don't know all of them, but the numbers that are probably be, being written by Black authors is probably really, really, really low. So it's not just a problem with, oh, that Spiffo isn't picking books by yeah. black authors but those books don't exist because those people aren't given the opportunities in order to do so i mean we we can go down this long tangent and there's going to be 
uh, a dozen more connecting points to why that disparity exists. You know, self-publishing is expensive to get editors, to get cover designers, to have beta readers if you're going to pay for them, to have sensitivity readers, to have marketing. And the, the list goes on. And the people with more access to, to disposable income and able to do that are more often white because of the racism that is that our, our country is predicated on and the racism in other countries as well. And so it, this is not just a race issue. It is, a, it is a race issue and it's a socioeconomic issue. It's who has time to actually sit down and write, who has time to submit to all the agents, who has time to submit to all these contests, who has the resources and the, uh, the access points, who has mentors within the community that are going to help them uh, advance their book and who are going to push their narrative, who has bloggers behind them that are going to read their arcs and review them and hype them up before their launch. There are so many reasons why you see a disparity. Um, and there are people in the self-publishing community that will say that self-publishing is a leveling playing field. It's not. It's a microcosm of the larger publishing industry and it exemplifies it in many different ways and a lack of diversity is one of those ways we can keep going on this i think for hours and hours um but i think that's a good place to wrap this up i mean if you want i can go get my soapbox and i can uh do some more (laughs) yeah yeah uh yeah it's a it's a messy it's a thorny issue um there's obviously no solution to this but um so that this podcast episode is not three hours long i think that we should move it along to um our Dragonfire segment it is time for our first dragon fire where we take up to five minutes to tackle topic and we'll be doing this for about 30 minutes and as we roll along if we run out of things to say about a topic we'll hop on to the next one this is kind of our rapid fire q a we're, we're just going to get into it and see what the other has to say about uh some fantasy topic number one so for our first topic we're going to be tackling the new glut of Lord of the Rings content that's probably coming our way. If you haven't heard, Warner Brothers has announced that they are currently working on new Lord of the Rings films. Recently, a Polygon article talked about how there are at least five Lord of the Rings video games coming out in the next couple of years. So James, do we need this much Lord of the Rings content? Well, I think I already know your answer from you framing it as glut. Uh, So (laughs) I I think we're on a similar page, but honestly, I don't care. I, I don't care. They're going to make more Lord of the Rings content. They're going to make as much MCU content as possible. They're going to keep on making everything into its own cinematic universe until we stop attending the movies and until we stop paying attention. It's financially viable for them, and they're going to make a lot of money off of it. At the end of the day, I don't care. I am not the biggest Lord of the Rings fan, and this content's not for me. Hey, maybe they'll make some great things, but I probably won't be the first in line to watch them. Yeah, and I have to blame a little bit the the token estate themselves for this, and it's just the way that they've sold the rights. So like the Rings of Power show on Amazon this company over here gets to make TV and movies, but only about the appendices. And these people over here get to make it only based off of this group of like words. And this group over here gets to work on this stuff. And it just makes everything feel so disjointed and oddly competitive rather than it feeling like a cohesive Lord of the Rings universe. 
And I think that's why, like, the Rings of Power show is actually really boring because they were so restricted in what they were allowed to use and what they could do. But yeah, with Warner Brothers doing this, they've also said they want to make more Harry Potter content. And it just comes down to the fact that we don't need more of it. And it's not that I say that all of it's going to be bad, but they're just making it to make it because they have the IP and they have the franchise. As much as these companies train us on what media to consume, we train them right back in terms of what we will go see. And these IPs are safe. They will have a viewership. And we've made that promise to them time and time again. Because we watched The Rings of Power. As bad as it was, we watched it. And there were moments that were good, but it wasn't worth the time. And It looked I, good. It, it looked beautiful. I, I would also say you're doing being too fair to Amazon by blaming the estate for the the amount of horrible writing that went into that show. Yes, they were very limited in what they could do, but at the same time, that writing was awful. I think the head writers, this was like their first major TV project. Like they took no, like pretty much people with no experience and gave them what, $5 billion and said, make a TV show. I I guess that makes sense given that, you know, Jeff Bezos has no history of space travel, but he built himself a spaceship. So, you know, (laughs) why not give the people who have no knowledge of something, the reins to all this money and, and space and time. Like I want to see some new things. I think there are a lot of other IPs to be adapted. There are a lot of books to be adapted. I'm sure you have your top five of what you'd like to see come out. And that's t- that's something that we can get into another dragon fire. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm bored. I am bored of the same old IP coming out again and again. What's this next one going to do? It's going to tease out a character for the whole series. And at the end of the day, we're going to find out it was Sam's father. Like, I don't care. I'm getting my Tom Bombadil anime series, okay? <laughs> I I don't even know who that is because I have only seen the Lord of the Rings movies and uh, you can stone me to death for that later, uh, but I have yet to read the Lord of the Rings books. Oh, I don't really like the books, so I, I think the movies are <laughs> infinitely better. But yeah, so I would say to wrap up my pr- perspective, I'm hoping that some one of these is good, but I don't need it to be. Number two. All right, another five minutes on the clock. We have AI in writing. We have the advancement of this new technology that is coming through where we have AI tools that are learning how to write stories. And there have already been a few stories that have been published. I think mostly they've been like small children's board books. Uh, I don't think there have been any full novels published but it's coming so what are your thoughts on it we've already seen this become an issue in the short story space where a lot of fantasy and science fiction short fiction magazines have had a problem with ai generated stories being submitted where i think clark's world and grimdark magazine both had to close their submissions because Mm. they just did not have the staff to go through and actually determine whether these things were AI generated or not. So it is going to become a big issue. And I think as it becomes better and better, it's going to be the issue of can we determine whether something was written by an AI or a human? And I think a good question is at that point where we can't determine whether it was or not, do we even care then at that point? Here's my thoughts on it. I I think that people will tell you that AI can't write a story like human can. It's going to be able to. 
you're going to see AI, AI capable of writing a fully fleshed out book with fully fleshed out characters. And it, they, they might even be good books, potentially great books. Are they going to be able to push barriers and do something new with, with plot devices or turn tropes on their head in the same way that people can? Maybe, maybe not, because they're really going to be based off of the, the literature we already have. So they're going to be able to turn out books a thousand times faster than the average writer and about two times faster than Brandon Sanderson. So they're going to have more content coming through for less cost. They're going to have to edit it, but they already pay editors. So why not? And so it takes off, it takes out the middleman. We don't need a writer anymore. And publishers are going to flock to that because Publishers are business and they want to sell their copies. I think the question isn't, can they do it? And should they do it? Because honestly, in AI could do a lot of people's jobs and it could take away some of the burden on our labor forces. It could, it could be used in ways that are really productive and helpful for people. I don't know if taking away creative pursuits and jobs that are focused on human creativity and using and music, arts, the books, um, movies. I don't know that we want to live in the world where we're not a creative species. And that is what we're going to teach ourselves to do. We've already cut all the art classes from schools. So are we going to cut English next? So we don't need to know how to write well, like where is this going and what kind of society do we want to live in, I think, is the question. Yeah. And I think in, in this in this utopia that I imagine for myself in the future, which is where I don't have to work because I hate working and AI does all the jobs and we all just like skip and like do whatever we want. Like we're all like Charles Darwin and like the rich people of the Victorian era. <laughs> I thought that the whole point of that is so we get to be creative. And so yeah. we get to like engage in those activities that we don't have time to, or we don't have enough time to do because we're working 40 plus hours a week in jobs that we don't like. But like, if all of a sudden we're taking those creative pursuits and giving those to AI as well, then like, what are we even doing here as people? Like, what are our lives? What makes our lives meaningful? And I think that's a great point. I, I think that this is not where we need AI. I think there are uses for AI. And I think uh, regardless of what we have to say here, pub publishing houses are going to try it. They've already done AI generated art for pretty big name books. I, I don't think anything's holding them back from replacing our author or even trying to, to skate a book by us without telling us it's AI generated content. Uh, the the issue too is that like I as a reader want to read a book because an author wanted to write the book as a creative pursuit and oh. not and not because they want to get paid for it. As soon as the timer goes off, we have to switch to the next topic. Nathan, what is the next topic? Number three. We thought it'd be fun if we each assigned the other person a terrible video game adaptation, whether that's a movie or a TV show or whatever. And the other person has to defend it and say why they actually think it's worthwhile, no matter what their actual personal opinions on that adaptation are. I chose um, a movie that I know you've seen that I have not seen, and I want you to try to convince me to see it. And let's go Warcraft. Oh, okay. I actually, I, I honestly don't think Warcraft was as bad of a movie as people make it out to be. I think it it's not a good Warcraft movie, but... <laughs> It's it's 
I, I don't think it's meant to be faithful to the game. It's it's a very basic by the numbers fantasy movie that is really good for background noise. It's you know if if you want something to turn your brain off and watch, put in Warcraft. I mean it's it's not going to be an Oscar worthy performance. It's not going to make you tear up, but it's going to be entertaining. The graphics were not that bad. Uh, the acting it was passable, and the storyline basic as it was it was well done i would say that warcraft if it didn't have the name warcraft would have been a really great streaming movie that's all i got all right i didn't even have to jump too far for that i i I actually believe that okay Um, cool yeah i'll definitely check it out and you don't have to run to check it out but i'm gonna give you the old g super mario brothers super mario brothers yeah um, which, I mean, I am excited for that movie, except for the Purse Crab Boys, but that one yes. does look really good, the one that's coming out <laughs> soon. So the OG Super Mario Brothers, the thing for me is that that is the pinnacle of, like, movie camp. And I okay. think that if a movie is going to be bad, at, less, at least let it be campy. I don't know how people perceived it in the 1980s when it came out, but by the time I saw it, I thought it was like a satire of itself. And I thought it didn't take itself too seriously. And it's just a good time. It is a funny movie, whether they wanted it to be or not. And it just has that very clear 80s aesthetic. It's something that could not be replicated today. Well, I'm, I'm just wondering if the 80s aesthetic is good for a 90s movie. Oh, is it a 90s movie? Yes. I thought it could. Dang it. <laughs> uh, so that makes it even worse. That makes it even worse. But it maybe even makes it better that it has that aesthetic because it's like so low budget and it just doesn't care what you think about it. And I think I appreciate that. I think that when somebody shoots for a movie to be good and then it's not good, that's the worst. But when people who make movies just say, I don't care what you think about this, we're just running with it. I think that there's something admirable about that. Okay. With that, I think we're on to our next our next topic. You want to start us off? Number four. So for our next topic, and this goes back to, James, what you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, which is, has Patrick Rothfuss ruined his legacy because he hasn't finished his trilogy? So what do you think as a so, big Name of the Wind fan? I, I love the Name of the Wind. But I will say that if he hasn't ruined his legacy, he's definitely damaged it. He has done great harm to his legacy. If you're not familiar with Name of the Wind, Patrick Rothfuss, the the King Killer Chronicles, the first book came out, what, in the early 2000s? And then it took quite a few years for the second book to come out. And since then, it's been over a decade. And this promised book uh, does not have a release date. So the Doors of Stone has been kind of MIA for a long time. I love this story. I can't wait to read it when it comes out. But he has been misleading, bordering on lies with some of the content, uh, with some of his his Twitch streams and Q&As and things like that. He recently, well, on a Twitch stream, he raised money. And the goal that they surpassed was that he would release a chapter of the book that had no spoilers in it. And then he said he was going to have a cast audio narrate that chapter. It has been over a year and he has not released it. He has not given any plans to release it. He has not even addressed it for the most part. He just kind of has avoided the topic of conversation. So people paid money 
gave it to charity on on his behalf, and then he did not follow through with that promise. And I think that more than anything ruins his legacy because, you know, there's a certain promise you make to your readers when you're starting a series that it's going to finish. But even more than that, he made a direct promise to those people who donated to charity on his behalf, and he completely avoided following through on it. And has since just stopped talking about it. I think that what that's what makes him different, for example, than George R. R. Martin. Because George R. R. Martin has never said that he has written all seven books of A Song of Ice and Fire. Like Patrick Rothfuss has said that all three of his books were written before they even published Name of the Wind. And while George R. R. Martin is also stringing people along, I don't think he's ever given any indication that there's like a publication date or that he was going to release something when he didn't. And so I think that's why there's a little bit of those differences there where Patrick Rothfuss seems to be a little more belligerent about the way that he's been treating the fans and just producing the work while George R. R. Martin seems like he's just kind of leaning back and just laughing at about it all. But George R. R. Martin is also rolling in the money of HBO. So I think there's a big difference there as well. Um, I don't necessarily think always that authors owe readers anything. I will always love when they finish their series, but I also understand that there are things outside of their control that sometimes gets in the way. For example, like Scott Lynch, the reason he hasn't finished the Gentleman Bastard series is because of his own personal health concerns and his own health needs. Yeah, I think it's just the way that Patrick Rothfuss has navigated these spaces and the the rhetoric that he's been using that's made it just a little irksome. I would, I'll say this in his defense. He did say that he had written all three books before publishing, but he also has clarified that book one had a huge amount of editing and changes made before it was actually released. And then subsequently, book two had to have so many changes. Uh, I can't think of how many changes that I've made from the original drafts of No Heart, no Heart for a Thief to what was actually released. And if I had written everything out and then gone back and made changes to one at a time, that would be very difficult to do. I think I could do it in 10 years, but I would say like, it's not that like he just has decided not to release something that's done. I would also say there are some people who have been harassing him in ways that are very inappropriate. So I would say that's not acceptable, but at the same time, I think he was poised to be, one of this generation's most notable uh, sci-fi fantasy authors, and he's ruined that. Yeah, well, it seems like we can all just read uh, the first binding and read that trilogy that will probably be completed and will give us the same experience. At sometimes almost beat for beat. And I hate to say that because I really was rooting for this book. It, we'll talk about that another time. All righty. Well, I think that is it for this episode of the fantasy review podcast. So thank you everyone for joining us for our first full episode here. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this episode was produced and edited by Tommy Rose. Please also subscribe to our podcast uh, wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes are going to be posted every other week. So come back and join James and I, as we tackle another in-depth topic and another round of dragon fire. If you're interested in more reviews, interviews, recommendation lists, check out the fantasyreviews.com. That is plural with an S, fantasyreviews.com. You can also follow James and I on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. All of the information for our socials will be the episode notes for this episode. 
Also consider supporting the Fantasy Review on Patreon to help us keep doing what we're doing. It helps our entire team to support our blog and this new podcast. And you can also find information about how to do that in the episode notes. So, James, I think that's it. That's it. Thank you for joining us. All right. Goodbye, everyone. 